This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Friday Twilight Show, our weekly look at the issues affecting Scottish education. On the show this week, we'll be talking about the refusal to close schools early as COVID surges threaten Christmas, the latest literacy and numeracy stats, and we'll discuss anti-racist education and BAME representation with Nuzhat Uthmani. Don't go anywhere. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Good evening, everybody, and thank you for joining me once again this week for the second edition of the Twilight Show on Teachers Talk Radio, focusing on the issues affecting Scottish education. Um, Just um, to say as we start off, if you're joining us live and you do that through the Podbean app, then you can either uh, text or even call into the show. Obviously, if you're uh, listening back to this later on as a as a podcast, then I hope that the world hasn't changed too much in the days between what I'm about to say and uh, when you're going to listen to it. So we'll start off this week, as we did before, looking at some of the current issues that are affecting Scottish education, things that have been in the news, things that are affecting people on a day-to-day basis right now. And the most obvious one affecting schools right now is the simple fact that the government has refused to countenance the possibility of closing them early. So we are currently being told, and we talked about this last week, you know, in increasingly um, strident terms about the need to restrict our movement, restrict our contacts, and to restrict our ideas, I suppose, of what Christmas is going to look like this year. Um, so in Scotland, that advice, that advice has you know taken the form of even being told you know by or asked by Nicola Sturgeon today you know to uh, just simply you know leave the house a lot less often than you than you would have otherwise done. It's quite clear that the Omicron variant is you know posing a real serious threat. I think anybody can see that the infection numbers are increasing absolutely massively and there are again as we said last week these issues um, and concerns around nhs capacity um that being the you know the, the the big major threat of all this that very very high numbers even if they turned out to be very very mild cases um the sheer weight of the numbers is the thing that looks like it could become the problem just now and that's of course if we are if we're assuming that omicron is um a milder version of coronavirus than others and that is still something that despite it being um becoming increasingly prominent is still something that hasn't been confirmed that we don't really have enough data for at least that's what scientists are telling us um so there's a obviously a broad social issue but then there's the issue in schools as well because i saw today reported in the herald newspaper um There's already massive absence rates in schools, both pupils and teachers, which is hardly surprising given that the rates of the the virus have increased so much, but also because of what schools are. Schools are environments that bring lots of people together in a a very, very close setting. 
Um, I have one friend tell me today they reckon that probably around about a fifth of their school wasn't in. I got a Twitter message from somebody. They reckoned their school was down to about 60% attendance or so today. Now, some of that will be to do with um, people self-isolate because they have COVID. Some of it will be self-isolation because they are close or, or household contacts. Some of it is absolutely, definitely, parents keeping their kids off school just now because they've known for the last few days that if their kid comes home with COVID from school, uh, then there is a very high chance that the whole family are going to be isolating across um, all of Christmas time. This is clearly after last year, after everybody feeling significantly more hopeful um, this year about what was going on, then I don't think it's uh, difficult to understand why people have reacted as they have to the prospect of, you know, sort of that that threat is hanging in the air Christmas being cancelled so even in the case of there being healthy kids there's still some of them being being kept out of school all of which makes the point blank refusal to even apparently consider um, closing schools a few days early seem even more bizarre so you know Nicola Sturgeon was telling us um, that you know they would do whatever it takes to keep schools open you know at all costs whatever the exact sort of phrasing phrasing was um and you would think from what they're talking about that that you know or, or or from the response that we're talking about some you know devastating french lock fresh lockdown being french lockdown fresh lockdown being being imposed on people all over again you know um but we're talking about a few days extra closure before the christmas holiday i mean you know let's face it ultimately we're talking about you know missing out on the few days just before the holiday when this year of all years you know are we really expecting huge amounts of work being done because even if a teacher was wanting to do huge amounts of work are you going to be able to get it done with 40 percent of your class missing best case scenario you know um and there are lots of schools my sons is one of them where monday is about watching christmas films together and for the record that's not something i've got a problem with in a normal year i'm not one of these people who's who kind of buys this stuff about you know kids should be getting you know ground through the work right up until the last possible second in the term and stuff like that i don't think schools are purely academic endeavors i don't think there's any problem um at the end of a term with you know being a bit nice to the wains frankly i don't really see why that's any sort of issue so i've got no problem with you know the watching christmas films at christmas time with their friends i think that's that's largely a good thing but this year yeah this year it seems like maybe it's the kind of thing that isn't quite so essential and you know there are claims that um, it's important that schools stay open for like educational reasons because you know the, the suggestion being pupils will fall further behind or something like that you know um if they're off school for you know again a few days before the christmas holidays um that one doesn't really hold water the other maybe argument for it is that it's that i saw is you know it's is this something to do with mental health basically that lockdowns had this huge impact on kids and more closures will will make it worse and I, yeah, dare say they would for the rest of us as well. But again, we're not talking about some, you know, massive, you know, months long lockdown or anything like that. Don't leave your houses, etc. What we're talking about is, or what people were talking about, um, was the idea that maybe 
if we just close schools a few and it's not even all schools in scotland it's not as if we've got like a single closure date across the country some schools closed today others including the ADI 11 are supposed to be in uh, through into uh, through into next week but we are really just talking about closing some schools a few days early to give that little bit more space for people leading up to the christmas holidays both of the kind of claims around you know why it might be terrible center on this idea that kids have already lost out so much from lockdowns you know kids education has been harmed from lockdown their mental health has been harmed from lockdown and, and you know obviously right obviously that's true there's no question of that and we shouldn't minimize the impact of it on young people that being said it is notable that people who are so incredibly upset at the prospect of a couple of days just before the holidays and that being some terrible threat to education didn't seem or don't seem massively bothered by uh, the, the the day off school that everybody's getting next year to celebrate the fact that elizabeth windsor is still alive so you kind of feel as if maybe um, a little bit of perspective would have helped with this situation absolutely nobody wants to see schools closing nobody wants that nobody wants to see schools having to close being forced to close at times when they would not otherwise be getting closed obviously that's the case but if a few days before the christmas holidays you know if closing schools for those for a couple a couple of days 30 days just before christmas if that looks like the same thing to you as past lockdowns and if you think it'll have a similar effect in terms of education or mental health as the actual lockdowns that we lived through then i think fundamentally you probably just need to be kept well away from decision making because you're clearly not thinking about this objectively anymore this is this that's an emotional reaction and a wildly inaccurate one as well you know a, a water balloon looks a lot like a tennis ball if you look at it the right way but i wouldn't try and run wimbledon with the former um a wee break before Christmas of a couple of days when a lot of kids aren't going to be there anyway is not the same thing as the lockdowns that we have seen. And actually using the, the spectre of that and using the, the potential impact on vulnerable kids is actually therefore, I think, a bit tasteless um, from the, the sort of sides that's come from. Ultimately, this isn't a decision about education. Ultimately, this has been a decision about politics. So it's either to do with basically childcare and wider economic issues that revolve around those, um, which is not unreasonable. You know, it's it's not as if yeah, you can just sort of like magic that issue away. And as I think people sort of learned to accept, maybe at the first lockdown, actually one of the primary functions of schools in this country is simply to provide free childcare for people to go out and work. So the fact that that would be taken away at incredibly short notice obviously causes a problem. It is, of course, why decisions should be made early. However, um, so on the one hand, is it to do with basically sort of child care and knock on economic issues that would come from that potentially? But that feels like it could have been manageable. Because um, on the other hand, the other sort of political option is that realistically, the government's just a bit scared. Um, it remembers the reaction before and doesn't really fancy getting into that kind of fight again when it's got other things to worry about. Um, the sort of, um, how would you put this, maybe like the fear of the, the moon howlers, you know, but, you know, groups like us for them, people in opposition benches. And again, you know, as I, as I said last week, you know, the government ha will have one eye on the fact that if they announce, you know, a, a couple of days of school closures, 
um, just to give a little space, you know, a bit more of a window that those, you know, groups, us for them, etc., etc., are going to end up all over the papers because the media is going to go after them for the comments because they are, you know, to use the correct editor speak, they are good value. Um, whichever one of those it is, though, we should be able to accept that it isn't about education. You know, nobody is desperately trying to keep schools open for the two days before Christmas because kids are, are going to have their education completely torn apart by a closure. It's it's simply not about that. It is a political decision. And as I say, if you fall on the side of thinking it's a political decision driven by childcare and economics, then maybe it's a completely uh, legitimate and defensible political decision. Perhaps even it's a public, it, it, it has it has angles of public health in it because you're looking at it thinking about the big picture and thinking about, well, if we if we declare that, if that causes huge problems, maybe that has knock-on problems for other public health policies and other aspects of our public health response. Again, there maybe there's an argument for that, and I'm sure there are people, you know, much more expert than me, as in people who, who are actual public health experts, who, who could make that kind of argument. But can we not just be honest about it? Do we need to spend all of our time, you know, pretending that this is about one thing when it isn't? Do we need to, because ultimately, is this not just the usual thing about weaponizing kids by trying to frame this as being all about protecting their education when everybody who knows anything about it knows it's nothing of the sort? Another aspect of it as well that's sort of deeply concerning is a feature of the government's handling and the government's advice on this. Now, this is, as far as I understand it, a, a Scottish-only issue because the isolation rules are different up here. But in Scotland, if you are a household contact of someone just now, particularly of Omicron, um, even a PCR is not getting you out of, out of 10 days isolation. However, the government's documents, and including one that came out today that can, I noticed this a few days ago, and a new one came out today confirming it with its own bullet point and everything, is um, government advice sort of noting the possibility of teachers, quote, volunteering um, to end self-isolation if schools are struggling to stay open. So if staff absence rates get high enough, if this becomes a big enough issue, if it looks as though it might be threatening the school's ability to actually open up, then, well, in that case, you know, are there any teachers self-isolating as household contacts of somebody that might want to, you know, as big air quotes here, you know, volunteer uh, to come in and keep the school open? It seems, even just on the face of it, incredibly dangerous. Um, Nicola Sturgeon, looking in, in our briefing today, responded to a journalist who'd asked about... Um, you know, could we do something about self-isolation for workers, et cetera, et cetera, and responded with this, this kind of like, you know, um, sort of incredulity, you know, oh yeah, that'd be great because that'd spread cases everywhere. But apparently it's okay to, you know, to contemplate that for schools because this is all about, you know, keeping this um, this pledge now, you know, schools will stay open basically sort of no matter what. But not only does it seem incredibly dangerous and laughable in a kind of big sort of general sense, um, there are specifics as well. What kind of teachers do we think? If you end up in that situation, you know, and this was raised basically on day one from somebody um, that I saw, I think we all know how this kind of plays out, for example, for the probationers and the newly qualified teachers. Because do we all remember being a probationer or a newly qualified teacher? And there's no such thing as a request. <laughs> Anything you might be asked to do, nothing feels like being asked to do it, especially in Scotland with the probation system and the issue with jobs after it. You know, I ended up, what was that, did a probationer 
think I ran a French group or something like that. You know, <laughs> like we all end up in these in these kinds of situations, but this time it's significantly more serious. But it'll be the same kind of people who are under pressure to. Um, you know, volunteer themselves out of self-isolation if it comes up and put themselves at risk. Um, the other thing is, and again, I don't know how people feel out there as, as parents, but I would be absolutely furious if I found out that my son was in class with an adult who was identified as a household contact of somebody with this virus that is changing, this version that's changing the game, and they had just volunteered to go into work. Um so somebody actually is coming in on the text there saying it was the same in the hubs last summer. There were lots and lots of NQTs and people in supply sort of looking for a job and being being taken advantage of. And I can't say I'm hugely surprised. Now, that's why it's a good thing that the union position on this seems to be fairly clear, which is no. Um, I've seen union reps tweeting and talking about this and they were fielding lots of questions on it and stuff like that. Again, I'm, I'm not at all surprised because teachers in many cases are extremely unhappy about how they've been treated um, over the last 18 months or so. And this looked like it would just be, you know, the next thing. Um, what it comes down to in the end, you know, Nicola Sturgeon said, I want to keep schools open at all costs. That was a political statement. Um, didn't quite realise at the time that she meant, you know, <laughs> um, at all costs, including people volunteering out of self-isolation, but nonetheless, um, is the truth here ultimately that the Scottish government just in the end when it came to it wasn't really willing to pay the political cost of absolutely guaranteeing to keep kids and keep their families safe in the run up to Christmas. The second issue this week is one that um, in any other year, I suspect, would have uh, got an awful lot more attention, obviously, but given what's going on just now, nothing really gets much attention for long. But this one is to do with the latest literacy and numeracy statistics that have been published for Scotland. So for listeners outside of Scotland, I'll just explain how we do that here. So in Scotland, we have this measure called um, Achievement of Curriculum for Excellence Levels. And Curriculum for Excellence is the name of our, uh, is, is the silly name of our, um, of our curriculum in Scotland. Now, the Achievement of Curriculum for Excellence Levels are basically the only national measure that we have of literacy and numeracy. And we gather those uh, for pupils in primary one, primary four, primary seven, and what we call S3, the, the third year of secondary school. The, the system itself is, very, very flawed. Um, there are issues with the data, there are issues with its reliability, there's all sort of, and we don't have time to go into, that's, that's a whole, that's a whole section on its own. Um, but the origins of it matter. It came out of a process a few years ago, which was the Scottish government trying to get on the front foot with its whole judge me on my records type of stuff. We used to have a system called the Scottish Survey of Literacy and Numeracy, which was, as the name suggests, a survey-based model that um, and sample-based, which gave us really good, actually really robust data about the state of literacy and numeracy in Scotland. Uh, it was The data was so robust and uh, so good that the government killed off the SSLN because it was giving them data they did not like. So we now no longer have the really robust sample-based method of the SSLN, which being a sample doesn't wash back into the classroom, doesn't affect teaching and learning, just gives you a snapshot of, uh, of what's going on. Instead, what we have now is teachers reporting on whether or not every single one of their students 
assuming they're in P147 or in S3, have achieved the expected curricular level. Now, <laughs> there is doubt over whether that is a genuinely consistent model because there remain concerns about a lack of um, consistency and uniformity across the country in terms of what these standards look like. But there's also a lack of understanding about what these levels are and how they work that is actually, I think, sometimes even more of a problem, particularly once you get to the public-facing side of things. Because I think the public are quite entitled to look at something and say, you know, right, okay, level one, level two, level three, and they look like, you know, hard cuts, And they look like if you haven't achieved them by a certain date, then that's clearly a problem. But that isn't actually how CFE was designed, and it's not how the levels actually work. They're not designed to be or intended to be any sort of series of hard cutoffs that a failure to reach say you know like um a failure to reach level two by the end of um uh, by the end of primary seven you know that's that is a failure it doesn't really work that way because there's overlap between levels two and three and that overlap is kind of intentional and it's there to, to sort of allow for the fact that the wording in our in our curriculum and in our documents doesn't say we expect every single pupil to have reached, say, you know, to have achieved level two by the end of primary seven, because that would be ridiculous, as we all know as teachers. Um, unless you know, unless would be your Michael Gove and expect everyone to be, you know, performing above average. Um, it doesn't work in that kind of basis because we talk about um, expecting most young people to have achieved these levels. So even then, there's there's a wee bit of an issue in terms of how you report all this stuff because there's nuance in that that is important at a school and a curricular level, but doesn't really matter once you get to the front page of a newspaper. Um, in terms of how it, it's actually, the, the, the mechanism works, we measure um, students' abilities to meet the expected standards in the areas of reading, writing, listening and talking. We also combine those three things into a combined literacy score and we have a numeracy score. And what we also do is we break all that information down by something called the Scottish Index of Multiple Deprivation. Um, so I appreciate this is all starting, this starts to get complicated. So the SIMD is a system which categorises uh, the whole of Scotland on the basis of relative deprivation scores. You can put in your, any postcode, you can find any part of the country, and it has a score of 1 to 10 based on the extent of the relative deprivation in that area, based on factors that include income, health, inequality, location, things like that. Now, it's an area-based model, which means it is there are there are issues there are flaws it's less accurate for individuals because it is focused on an area it doesn't take into account who the individuals in that area are beyond the, the generalized data so if you know if a millionaire moves into the poorest area of the country they're going to get counted as being in the poorest area and not as being a millionaire at least when it comes to this kind of thing um that's a particular issue because research in scotland has shown that actually lots and a very large number of the poorest people do not live in the poorest areas. There are also issues with SIMD when you get into Scotland's um, more rural and remote areas. This used to come up when I lived in Arran because the parcels of, of land in which it works become so big that sometimes it can hide deprivation and it can hide inequality rather than highlight it. But in, in, its, um, in its most effective context, if anyone's listening, if you're wondering, you know, go to simd.scot and go and find Glasgow. And you can look at Glasgow and it all comes up reds and blues. And if you know Glasgow, 
you will not need to try and overlay those reds and blues onto the names of areas to know what they are. You can see very, very clearly where deprivation lies. So it's a very helpful thing in that regard. And we use it for all sorts of um, all sorts of policy making in Scotland. It's, it's kind of based on SIMD instead of, say, free school meals. Now, all of that allows us to create something that we can at the very least kind of point at and say, look, there's the attainment gap. And people want that. It makes particularly politicians and policymakers, but also journalists, feel an awful lot better about massive, complex, intersectional and intergenerational poverty when they can boil it down to a percentage point gap in a, in a narrow range of educational outcomes. Um, but even if we take it as read, even if we engage with it as it, you know, as as they would like us to, I suppose, well, okay, let's have a look and see what the what the picture shows. So there are um, a total of 20 metrics because we have five separate ones, reading, writing, listening, talking, overall literacy, and then numeracy. And we've got four stages in the data. It is not, however, P1, P4, P7, and S3 because S3 data wasn't collected. But what happens is the P1, 4, and 7 data gets combined so we get an overall primary school um, stat as well which the more you do that, obviously, the less useful the data sometimes becomes. And there are, again, there are problems in there, but it's still, you know, it's the best data we've got. It's all we've got. One of the major issues with Scottish education is the lack of data. So again, if we engage with it as it is presented across almost every metric, there are declining success rates. And that holds whether you are looking at the uh, most affluent 20% of the country, or you're looking at the most deprived 20% of the country. The success rates have declined more amongst the poorest than they have amongst the richest, and so the gaps have gone up. So what's the reaction been to that? Well, um, unsurprisingly, people have picked up on this because the Scottish Government has spent years trying to make education its big priority. It was described as a big, bleak increase in the attainment gap by one broadcast journalist. Um, and uh, even Reform Scotland, who, if, again, if you're not from Scotland and don't know them, are a, a right-wing, um, well, yeah, right-wing, um, and definitely lobbying group, sort of presented as a think tank, um, used its sort of erroneously named and very formal-sounding Commission on School Reform. Um, they've actually sent out a press release, which uh, I was laughing at before I came before I came on air. Sadly, it's embargoed until Monday, so I can't share all the full contents, but I don't think on Monday anyone's going to be massively surprised by um, by what they see. Um, and you know, there are politicians as well. Oh, obviously, oh, this, this, is a, this is a disaster. This shows Scottish education is failing, the usual kind of stuff. Does it really? Well, the biggest increase in a gap between the richest and poorest is five percentage points. That's it. Five percentage points. Kids have missed school. Kids have missed a lot of school. Kids have also missed all uh, lots of things going on outside of school. They've lived in a massively stressed society. They've seen their parents living in a mass, or the parents and guardians and relatives and anybody around them in, in these hugely stressful situations. And of course, all those stresses are also felt more by the poorest than they are by the richest. Um, the poorest kids, you know, you can, you can put a nice sort of visual difference in your head if you wish, you know. The poorest kids spent lockdown looking at the windows and high-rise flats while their better-off pals played under the trees in their gardens. Um, poorest kids are more likely to have parents who've suffered financially during the crisis or who have had to maybe take on 
you know, additional things in order to make ends meet because their their sectors have been more seriously affected and they're less likely to work in areas to be able to work from home. Uh, attendance has been hit, classroom activities have been hit, learning and teaching has been hit, leisure time has been hit, social interactions have been hit, family connections, people have died, people are suffering, people have long COVID, and the gap has gone up by five, a grand total of five percentage points. I mean, far be it from me to find myself being maybe like, you know, the, the guy is saying, listen, actually, these stats aren't as bad as maybe you think they are, given that I've spent a good bit of the last few years having to do the opposite. But I kind of feel like a five percentage point increase, if we assume it's accurate, because it's the best data we have, a five percentage point increase in the gap in literacy and numeracy in the middle of, you know, he, he gestures around the room, all of this in the middle of... A, a, a deadly global pandemic. Um, I personally, as I say, am of the opinion that it's actually quite a remarkable feat. And for me, it also confirms something, which is that our attention on post-COVID recovery needs to really be on helping you know people to focus on social and emotional recovery. It's not about, and people are still going to insist to you, you know, over and over again that the way to recover is essentially just to force, you know, the the forty percent poorest kids in the country to spend an evening sitting with a chair. I just, I don't, I'm not buying it. Um, I don't see it. It doesn't, it doesn't convince me. The thing, I, especially when you see data like this, as far as I can see, this is further evidence that helping kids to recover from all of this needs to start with their well being rather than trying to force them into the box of, you know, this is an academic catastrophe and we need to solve that because that's something that is more comfortable for us because we can simply outsource that problem to the idea of, say, throwing tutors at them or extending the school day. Finally this week, uh, there has been a new pay offer for Scotland's teachers. The initial offer was rejected, so a new one uh, came along in Scotland's um, sort of pay is set in a national negotiating committee. So the, the most recent offer was a 1% increase backdated to the 1st of April 2021, followed by a further 1% uh, from January 2022 and a one-off £100. Um, Inflation, so that comes to what we're looking at there, you know, a 2% and a, and a, and a 100 quid, and then 100 quid uh, clearly um, you know, doesn't really count, does it? So, um, you know, 100 quid isn't even, a, it's not even a decent bribe. So we've got a 2% offer for teachers at a time when inflation, last figure I saw was what, 5.1%? I was reading, uh, was reading talk today that was saying that um, we're looking at potentially, um, you know, nudging over 6% once we get into the new year. And we're trying to offer teachers a 2% pay increase. Now, it's already been rejected by the, the two main unions up here, the SSTA, which is the Secondary Teachers Association, and the, the EIS, who have said they will ballot their members for it, but are very strongly, from what I saw, uh, recommending uh, rejection of it. A real terms pay cut for teachers while trying to recover from a pandemic, a recovery that should really that should be focused on young people in, in, in so many ways as well, is an absolutely unbelievable insult from the Scottish government. There's an enormous amount of work required. You know, even if we leave aside the job that teachers managed to pull off over the last 18 months, 
the next 18 months, the next three years, the next five years are going to be really unbelievably difficult, no matter how the next six months pans out. They're going to be anywhere on a scale from really, really, really hard to absolutely, unbelievably, almost insurmountably difficult. Um, you know, the teachers are being offered a pay cut, is what they're being offered. Um, and from a government that used to say that education was its top priority, because it used to suit them politically to say so, it's a particularly bad move. And as I say, a huge insult, I think, to a teaching profession that has like teachers in you know in other places, I'm sure, you know, I'm sure listeners in England will feel exactly the same way. A, a profession that absolutely went above and beyond, as it was always going to do, because it's teachers. Um, a real terms pay cut in a pandemic with inflation still going up, with a, a cost of living crisis to bite, feels like a slap in the face. Feels like going back to just this expectation that, of course, teachers will just do all this stuff. Of course, teach the there is an endless well of goodwill uh, for us to for us to exploit from teachers. But certainly, on the basis of the union's rapid responses to this, it is not the case. And the Scottish government and Scotland's councils are going to have to think again before we get any sort of agreement on what's going to happen with teachers pay. So those that's their uh, review of the, the major issues in Scottish education over the, the last seven days. And we'll be back in a few minutes after the ads and the news and some tech news for you all. Are you looking to take your phonics practice forward? Then Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised is the programme for you. Created by two schools with an excellent track record in phonics, Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised will help all children become readers and ensure no child is left behind. The programme offers complete support for your phonics teaching, alongside classroom resources and fully decodable readers from Collins Big Cat. To find out more, follow at Letters Sounds on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram or join a free briefing by visiting littlewondelettersandsounds.org.uk. Teachers Talk Radio is delighted to support Winston's Wish, the UK's childhood bereavement charity. Winston's Wish supports children and their families after the death of a parent or sibling. They provide emotional and practical bereavement support. Expert teams also provide online resources, specialist publications and training for professionals. Find out more about Winston's Wish and pledge your support at www.winstonswish.org. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. In Northern Ireland, the Education Minister, Michelle McElveen, is facing increasing pressure to develop an emergency plan to ensure that schools remain open after the Christmas holidays. Daniel McCrossan, SDLP MLA, said, Our schools are already under extreme pressure and the alarm bell has been sounded about the Omicron variant. We need to do everything we can now to ensure our schools can reopen safely in the new year. We need to see a reserve list of qualified teachers drawn up from education bodies and the department so they can be deployed to cover classroom shortages. 
and a reserve list of other education staff, including classroom assistants, administrative staff and cleaners who can help out when needed. I am also proposing an immediate reintroduction of mitigations, including cleaning regimes, safe travel to and from school, ventilation, contact tracing, and ensuring the current isolation guidance is followed. Epson and World Mobile have agreed to work together to support education and bring new opportunities to unconnected schools in Africa. The project has started with network connectivity from World Mobile and the installation of printers and projectors by Epson in some areas of Zanzibar, Tanzania, which have until now been left off the grid. These two companies have shown commitment to helping achieve the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. In this case, SDG 4, Quality Education, SDG 9, Industry, Innovation and Infrastructure, and SDG 17, Partnership for the Goals. Henning Olsen, Sustainability Director of Epson Europe said, this project is not about Epson or World Mobile. It's about focusing on until now disadvantaged local communities and providing the people there with opportunities to flourish. We firmly believe that providing a quality education for all is a key goal to achieve a sustainable society and we are delighted to work with our friends at World Mobile to do our part. We have just started this project but we hope that other partners will join us to create a positive cycle that benefits everyone involved. In Ghana, the education think tank Africa Education Watch has urged the government to increase the basic education share of the country's education sector expenditure by at least 50%, particularly to deprived public basic schools. Research has revealed poor teacher deployment, lack of textbooks, desks, washrooms, water, school buildings, among others, as hindrances to the achievement of quality education at the basic level. Executive Director of Africa Education Watch said, we must be more concerned about equitable distribution of resources and the distribution of quality education to the poorest and deprived communities rather than pride ourselves with the numbers which favour urban schools. This has been your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. This week we're going to look at one of the simplest, freely available, yet least used browser technologies, the Reader View. 
Chrome versus Edge. Let the battle commence. On screen one, I have Microsoft Edge weighing in at the cost of zero pounds. On screen two, I have Google Chrome also weighing in at the cost of zero pounds. Round one, opening reader view. On the Edge browser, the immersive reader feature is built in and can be activated by a button on the address bar, by typing read followed by a colon in front of a URL, and also you can simply press F9. Before you can open reader view in Chrome, you have to install it as an extension. It's free and not difficult. Once installed, you'll find it in extensions located to the right of the address bar. One point to Immersive Reader. Round two, features. Both come out fighting with the read aloud feature that allows the user to adjust the read speed, skip forward and back, and change the voice that is reading. They both also highlight the word being read. Chrome Reader has a volume control, which is a nice touch if not using headphones. One point, Chrome Reader. Round three, readability. A big feature for reader views is the ability to change the formatting to suit the user. Both allow easy changing of font size, font and text width on the screen, but they differ in background colour features. Here is where Immersive Reader offers quite a bit more. Chrome Reader offers 8 background slash contrast colours, 4 light and 4 dark. Immersive Reader provides 23 background options, green, pink, yellow and blue included, allowing pupils with visual needs to find a comfortable colour. One point, Immersive Reader. Round 4, Editing. Chrome Reader features a design mode. This allows you to highlight text and make changes. Quite useful if wanting to pick out key points to return to. Immersive Reader does not have this feature. One point Chrome Reader. Round five, extra features. Immersive Reader has a grammar feature, allowing words to be split into syllables. You can highlight nouns, verbs, adjectives, and adverbs by flicking switches. This feature is not offered on Chrome Reader. One point Immersive Reader. Immersive Reader also offers reading preferences, featuring line focus of five, three, or one line, blocking out the rest of the page. There's a picture dictionary, allowing some words to change the pointer to a magic wand that reveals a picture depicting it. Also, there's a translation feature allowing partial or full translation of a page into 88 different languages at the click of a button. Chrome Reader does not offer these features, however, other free products such as Google Translate could be used. Immersive Reader takes the point because you don't need to leave the page. Final score! Winning with 4 points to 2 after a blistering final round is Microsoft Immersive Reader, but let's face it, most people don't know these things exist. If you were one of them, please do something about it. See if these features are installed in your school, and if not, request they are. For a visual version of this episode, check out the TT Radio 2021 Twitter feed. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Welcome back, everybody. Thank you very much for, for staying with us. Um, we've now got our, our guests coming on this week. Um, so I'd like to say a, a big thank you, really, because um, this is also so, a thank you to uh, Nushat Uthmani, who's going to be joining us to talk about um, anti-racist education and BAME representation in Scottish education. So welcome. Hi, good evening, James. Lovely to be here. Thank you very much for, for joining us. It's great. It's great to uh, get to chat to you. Um, you're doing a great job. Some really interesting points you've raised. It's been quite a week. It has indeed been quite a week. Um, just so everybody knows, and I'll let her introduce herself in a little second as well, but um, Nusat's a primary teacher specialising in the teaching of global citizenship and anti-racist education. She's a member of the EIS BAME network and currently working on the Scottish Government's Race Equality and Anti-Racism in Education programme, although she is joining us tonight in a personal capacity rather than representing um, either of those organisations. So um, could you even just, like you know, welcome, could you t tell everyone a little bit about yourself? 
Yeah, so I'm a primary teacher. Um, I currently teach a primary seven class um, in a kind of inner city. And um, I guess my anti-racism work has really kind of uh, taken off during the first kind of lockdown. I started to read a lot more into these things. Obviously, I'm someone with lived experience. Um, and also my involvement within the EIS has um, helped me build those networks. Uh, when the initial report into diversity in the workforce was uh, published uh, in 2018 by Professor Rubina Urshad, that really got my attention um, to think, well, yeah, you know, there's hardly many of us around. And what are these kind of issues and barriers? Um, at the time, I had approached the EIS and I was pointed into the, in the, to the direction of a small network that existed at the time uh, for BAME um, teachers. When I went along, I kind of said to them, look, you know, let's uh, get our message out there. Let's increase our voices. Let's make people more aware of what our needs are and potentially what are the barriers we are that we're facing and challenges. Um, so I developed a kind of social network side of it. And that has really, really helped. And actually, it's been a great help for the workforce um, going into COVID-19. So that was the year before COVID hit us. Um, and I, it's kind of provided a space where teachers from all over the country can come together and discuss the concerns that they have, not just in terms of um, the barriers that they feel they face um, as ethnic minority teachers within our workforce in different parts of Scotland, um, but also for COVID, it became a real concern around February, May last year that obviously ethnic minorities were at higher risk potentially of suffering severely from COVID, um, potentially dying from COVID at a much higher percentage as well. Um, so one of the network events I had had in the um, June of that year when just, you know, how we had been told at that point that we had to come back to school and get ready for blended learning in the August. Um, remember the back then? So at that point, it was a huge concern of, well, how are we going to support the workforce that is potentially at much higher risk? So I had called a meeting at that point, and that resulted in the development of um, the BAME risk assessment for the EIS. It's the only one I'm aware of that exists in Scotland, at least, that um, is specifically tailored to the needs of ethnic minorities. So that's been a huge um, um, you know, help and support to really make other colleagues also aware of those risks and be mindful. Um, I do feel things have gone a little bit quiet at that end. We're not hearing as much now about the higher risks to ethnic minorities, but um, our risk assessments uh, stay in place. And obviously, um, everyone who has one should be monitoring that going into the new year as well. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of how I've got involved in that side of things. In terms of my anti-racism, I guess, especially with regards to um, the Black Lives Matter resurgence um, in the UK since last year, I really started to reflect myself as a teacher and on my own practice, you know, around, well, what do I teach? Why do I teach this? Or how, how do I teach it? Is it really representative of the people I'm teaching? Is it representative of the society we live in? And that has kind of taken me on a road now where I've begin to, began to kind of, I developed my own website and developing various interdisciplinary learning resources. Um, and I'm delivering a lot of CPD now, which is fantastic. So I think, I think it's great though, that there is a lot more understanding now, a lot more people are wanting to learn about these things, um, you know, and slowly that that desire and that understanding is growing. So that's where we are just now. 
Great. And one of the things, um, one of the things that you you said there is, you know, like, um, so being a, a teacher um, from a minority, I think you've been kind of looking around. And what was the word you used there? You don't realizing? Did you say there's not that many of us around? Yes. <laughs> is that the phrase you used? Yeah. Um, so I think because this is something that I think is worth explaining. I kind of went into this in my in my book, obviously, a little bit, but I think yeah. it's worth explaining, particularly because this doesn't just go out in Scotland. So yes. um, can we talk a little bit about? the statistics around the Scottish teaching workforce. So, So yeah, in terms of the workforce, James, there's more than one dimension, really, that we need to be looking at in this issue. So there is, of course, the issue around who is in the workforce currently. So there's, from last I remember, we're around 1.7%, I believe, of all teachers, of all um, teachers in through primary and secondary school in the Scottish workforce belong to an ethnic minority. Around one point seven percent, and and the according to the last census in two thousand eleven. So obviously that's over ten years ago now. But according to that, um, the ethnic minority population was around four percent. So the hope was that we'll try and increase it to four percent. But in reality, obviously, the ethnic minority population has probably grown significantly as well. It's also um, higher amongst amongst school pupils, isn't it? Because that was one of the exactly, things that I found so when I was researching amongst, my book, yeah. Yeah, so it's higher again then amongst the pupils that were serving. So 1.7%, you know, is really not very good. And then it's even more shocking when I share the fact that, as far as I'm aware, there are only two head teachers in the, in the whole of the country that are not white. Um, you know, and and it is really shocking then that how can you expect diversity of thought or perspective if everyone practically at that table, you know, is, is from that same background? So how can we possibly expect schools to be anti-racist and diverse and understand equality if people with those experiences are just not there? Um, so that that's one big issue. And also, I think in terms of increasing representation of teachers in the workforce it's not just about for example someone like me who would like to see more colleagues that are you know who have similar experiences to me it's not just about me and it's also not just about um, representation for the young learners who are diverse of course you know that phrase you can't be what you can't see is very relevant and young people are telling us that they don't I mean ethnic minority young people are telling us they don't consider teaching because they don't see it as relevant to them, because they don't have those role models. They're not seeing people in they those... They don't see themselves in that, in that, um, in that exactly. profession. So, of course, diversity will help that as well, and it will increase that um, sense of perspective uh, within a school community. But it's also about the greater population, the wider, you know, the majority, let's say, white children, who also need to see that representation across senior leadership positions to understand that everyone can be there, and that everyone is valued and contributing, you know, to their school community, to their education, to their lives. Um, you know, so it's about um, increasing that representation and understanding and respect across all communities. So there's that dimension in terms of the existing workforce. And of course, we then have to consider the fact that, in, for example, in Scotland's biggest council in Glasgow, there are no head teachers and no deputy head teachers. So everyone at that table, obviously, is white. Um, so there, is, there must be an issue there. Yeah, and no, Glasgow is obviously because one of the things, just to point this out to people as well, like Glasgow is Scotland's. Again, if people aren't aren't from here, I know there are listeners yeah. in England and, and further afield. Like Glasgow is Scotland's biggest, most 
diverse city. Uh, about a qu- mm. According to the stats that I was finding when I was uh, researching my book, about a quarter of pupils in Glasgow come from some sort of minority ethnic group. But the same is true for about 3% of primary teachers and 5% of secondary teachers. And it's, it's, yeah. it's worse than Glasgow, but it's, it's still bad in other places. So like non-white people make up about 10% of secondary pupils in Dundee, but just 2% of the teachers. Um, yeah. a similar kind of figures, but for primary, um, a fact actually is that about 20% of primary pupils in Edinburgh and 2% of teachers. So there's clearly, um, as you say, like when you look in specific parts of Scotland, this is yeah. an issue that will be magnified even further. And I, I remember when I was writing the part that paragraph on it, and I was just kind of thinking like 25% of people, how many young people in Glasgow go through school without yeah. ever seeing a non-white teacher. And whether, yeah. as you say, whether or not they're, they're white themselves or not, there, there are issues either way for that. But what proportion um, of young people go through education in Glasgow without seeing a single non-white teacher? It's, exactly, it's, and it's I worrying, think there's also it? an issue in terms of stereotyping. So we have a fantastic, um, you know, groups of teachers who support, for example, English as an additional language. And you might find quite often those are people who belong to ethnic minorities because of their the asset that they bring in terms of being multilingual, you know, but again, you don't want young people to think, well, that's all the ethnic minority teachers do, you know, that they can't, they're not the leaders, they're not the decision makers, they're not the policy makers. Um, so, you know, there are huge disadvantages, obviously. Yeah, that, they, they, uh, you don't want them thinking they're, they're, they're just here to help the kids who can't who can exactly. speak English kind of thing, exactly. you know? Yeah. And, and yeah, and then there's that sense of stereotyping and not giving them the value that they deserve as professionals and educators as well. And so there's that perspective. Then the other dimension is the other huge kind of barrier there is to those young people who actually are considering teaching. Yes. They're also facing um, barriers at that end in terms of application. So some stats that I've I've seen recently, um, they're from uh, Scottish government. They show that only 33% of ethnic minorities, up to 2019 this was, um, only 33% of ethnic minority applications are being accepted onto initial teacher training courses, um, whereas um, it's 50% for the white peers. You know, so you think, well, wow. oh, what, what's going on over there? Um, and then further, that kind of discrepancy there seems to continue with um, less percentage of ethnic minorities qualifying at the end of the course as well. You know, so again, they're losing out at that point too. So they're um, less likely to see themselves in teaching. They're less likely to therefore want to apply to teaching. When yeah. they do apply to teaching, they're less likely to be successful. And when they are exactly. successful, they're less likely to get through the course and actually become a teacher exactly. at the end. And there's a huge number of reasons why they're not being able to complete the course. You know, none of the none of the core, you know, for any of these issues, the cause is not capability. You know, that would be ridiculous to suggest that this whole group of people just aren't capable enough to lead or to make a decent application or to progress through a qualification. So they are facing barriers in their placements, the lack of support, not enough um, effective mentorship during the course through placements as well. Um, So that's adding to their barriers as well. And then if you do, amazingly, you know, face all those barriers, if you've managed to get through that, then obviously, thank goodness, your probation year is guaranteed. So you get your you get through your probation year, and at that point, only about seventy percent of them are able to secure employment. 
post-probation compared to 84% of their white peers. You know, so there are barriers at every stage. And ultimately what we need to ask and what, you know, there is a bit of a process going on now to look at these things is why. Why at every stage? What is happening at every stage that is knocking these people back, you know, and putting up those walls and these barriers and these, you know, some people now refer to as a concrete ceiling that we're trying to smash through here. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's very blatantly unfair. So we need mm-hmm. to find out what those issues are. And then, of course, the, once you are in the profession, yeah, you can just never be promoted. <laughs> so, so, yeah, there's a lot of um, issues there. Because this is the kind of stuff that I think for um, lots of people obviously have this view of Scotland as um, a very sort of progressive, a very forward thinking kind of place. Um, And in some ways, in some ways it's true, I'm sure. Um, But it's never, I, I kind of, I always kind of push back against it personally because it isn't really the Scotland that I see. It's not the Scotland that I feel like I live in. But this kind of issue, I think, is one of the things that some people are going to find this really quite difficult to hear. Some people are going to instinctively feel like this must be wrong. And yeah, those stats can't be right because this is Scotland and it's not not like that here. so obviously, it's not just a case of you know the fact that oh, that these problems exist and, and the numbers kind of bear out bear out the problems, but that lack of awareness of the issue, like it doesn't, this doesn't, the things you're saying there don't feel like the kind of things that people should you know only just be becoming aware of if, for example, they happen to be listening in tonight or happen to stumble across a document. That seems like the kind of thing that uh, the profession and and the system in Scotland should be very very intensely aware of because shouldn't we be very 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 actively trying to address it all of us yeah see the thing is the system and those people that should be aware of it are aware of it but again the problem comes down to the fact that when it comes to all our important systems and stakeholders within scottish education there is also a lack of diversity at those tables too whether it's the gtcs or um, you know scottish government um SQA, Education Scotland, you know, and they are working at that. They are increasing that. But in terms of what's happened so far, again, you know, it's how do we tackle these things if we don't have people with lived experiences that can really bring that perspective and that understanding, Um, you know, so that work is now starting. And what I would say, though, to um, like you're saying, you know, there will be people who think, oh, that sounds really shocking. I didn't know that. we need to realize that when we see things around BME and we see things around racism and lack of diversity in the workforce, people will scroll past thinking, oh, it's not my problem. You know, it's nothing really, you know, because it doesn't. Uh, yeah, that's that's somebody else's issue. Yeah, exactly. You know, so I'm not really facing that challenge. Oh, I hope they get it solved, but it's not my problem. You know, but what yeah. my request really to colleagues now is that everyone needs to engage in this because it can only help to enrich all of our experiences within our schools, for our, all our pupils, all our families and society ultimately. You know, yeah. And that's obviously where the anti-racism work comes in as well. You know, So for me, for example, the anti-racism work that I'm doing, um, pr- um, initially it is very much about what it looks like in the classroom you know, because it starts with our young people, we want them to now grow into adults that are going to be anti-racist and are going to stand up against these things. So my work, my priority is there initially. But it's also, the anti-racism is also then about getting our colleagues 
to understand what it means for their their um, you know ethnic minority staff. You know, so and the challenges and the barriers they're facing. So you know how we say, well, anti-racism, it's it's not enough to say, oh, but I'm not racist, and yeah, yeah, I'll support you. But it's about standing up against these unfair and frankly racist structures, you know, that we're all living in, that we are all part of. So yeah, yeah my request so to colleagues is really don't scroll past, read that article every now and then. Yeah. And, and try and that, understand that, that perspective. And this was something I was actually going to, I think, again, it's one of these things that for maybe listeners who aren't necessarily always aware of these kind of terms, maybe can we try and be clear about this, like, what, with what we mean by anti-racist education? Because as you say, I think a lot of people see, talk about anti-racism and sort of categorise it a lot with, you know, not being racist. But yeah. not being racist and anti-racism are not in fact, completely interchangeable things. So yeah. I think people might find it easy to get their head around the idea of making sure education is not racist. But I yeah. think people are sometimes struggling with what we mean when we say making education actively anti-racist. And so you're talking yeah. about, you know, what this looks like in the classroom. Can you give us can you give us an example? So I think, um, obviously, we've had race equality laws in our country in terms of the UK since the kind of 70s, right? So we're 50 years on and we're still having these um, discussions because, and I do think that obviously within schools, we have tried to give that message of we shouldn't be racist. But the problem is that we haven't been anti-racist. And what we mean by that is, you know, it's okay to say, oh, we shouldn't be racist and it's not nice to use certain language but the problem is then on the other side, we're still promoting either consciously or unconsciously stereotypes around racial groups. And what I mean by that is, for example, if we think oh, we're very multicultural because we um, always celebrate Diwali when it comes and we make Eid cards when, you know, when that happens and we do the whole thing around Chinese New Year. But the problem is if that's the only time you are talking about various groups of people, then that is also stereotyping. What you should be talking about is the contribution of these people to wider society and the lives that we're living. And that hasn't happened. And that's why we haven't been anti-racist, because we haven't been actually actively trying to break down those um, stereotypes that are existing. We're not breaking down that wall again, you know, of equality. Um, and so, so, for example, you know, one of the things is quite um, usually an active discussion is around texts that we're using and novels. So there's been a huge debate around, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird and Of Mice and Men. Yep. And, you know, and also about should we really be still teaching Roald Dahl? Yes. You know, and, mm -hmm. and I've I'm never someone who is advocating that we should now burn all these books and move on. But I do think we should move on to some extent in the sense that we also need to now look for our our current authors who are going to leave positive legacies. So there are now so many more authors that are from diverse backgrounds that are writing books with characters who have a different perspective. So you're, you're not, you know, your story isn't about Timmy who has a pal called Raj and Raj's dad owns the local corner shop. That story is never about Raj and his family. Yeah. You know, it's still um putting across a stereotype. What we want to know is a whole story about Raj. 
And we want to know about his family and how they've, what they've gone through to make a life in this country, for example, and how hard they've worked and their contribution to society and all the general things that Raj does in his life, which is actually the same as so many other children. Yeah. You know, that yeah. all children will identify with. So it's things like that around looking beyond what we've always done traditionally. So we're not saying don't teach Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, but also look at how else you can um, uh, incorporate, you know, other um, ethnic minorities and communities within our daily teaching. Yes, which, which uh, yeah, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. And I think it's actually something, even if people maybe don't have a, a great kind of grasp of, um, what that might maybe yet look like in, in classrooms. It sounds very similar to something that a lot of teachers in Scotland or an increasing number of teachers in Scotland will have a grasp on, which is the model that the Thai campaign use, which yeah. is this idea of put it, saying, you know, it's not enough just to not be homophobic anymore. Um, one of the things that, you know, that they've been spent the time pushing for is to make sure that, you know, LGBT people from history are explored as part of the curriculum and for their, their contribution to the society that we live in and that we don't shy away from the fact of looking at every aspect of who they were and telling, you know, the students that, you know, they were they were gay, they were trans, um, they were lesbian, whatever it was. Yeah. So and it also sounds like talking about how they were treated. Because yes. this is fact. You and know? it sounds so like that's not... the kind of model that you're advocating. Exactly. And it's interesting because the, the people from the Thai campaign had been um, invited to come and speak to the Scottish Government Group on Race Equality, especially because of the way they've kind of developed their model to look at maybe something similar that we could do. Um, and it's interesting really about, you know, the LGBT kind of progress since the um, you know ending of the Section 28 Act, I think it was around 20, 21 years ago, you know, the problem that a lot of anti-racism activists feel is that when it comes to race equality, it's racism specifically kind of gets lost within the wider debate of equalities. So that's why we're 50 years on without having to really focus on it properly. And although I'm not saying all the work is done in terms of LGBT, there's still a whole load of work, you know, to do to make sure that we're incorporating and embedding it into society, um, in schools and communities. Um, but it's made great, great progress. And one of the reasons I think it's made such great progress is that wider society has come on board. They've they've realized yes, that yeah, yes, mistakes were made, mistakes were made, and we need to stand in solidarity with that community and help, you know, push that. And that's where we are, I think, in terms of anti-racism, is we really need the wider community to get on board to help us push it, you know, and to listen. Um, so I think that's kind of the difference there. But yeah, it's definitely a great model that we can keep moving with. So, I mean, just we've got, I think, a few minutes left. Um, yeah. I was just, in terms of what's happening just now, um, is there, you know, we know Scotland's got a long way to go. I mean, you were talking about the census. Um, so one of the things that I'd kind of written about the census before is that the, our, our most recent ones, obviously, it's been delayed. But at the yeah. last one, the, the proportion of people from an ethnic minority group in society had doubled um, from yeah. the one before that. And it would be nice to think that might have happened again this time. Um, but obviously that will then have knock-on effects for what our goals need to be in terms of teaching. And we know from what you've told us about some of the stats and some of the issues affecting um, not just the existing workforce, but getting people into the workforce and, and presumably keeping them there as well. So what um, what do we need, what do you think we need to do in Scotland? What what could be changed that could um, that could start to make things better? Or what are what are your group working on? What's the change that we, we are hoping to see one day? 
Yeah, so in terms of what the Scottish government group is, not, I mean, it's not my group, you know, I'm yes. just a member. But, it can um, be your group for tonight, that's okay. Yeah, <laughs> and um, so the Scottish government working group, um, the website is available uh, if you, and if anyone wants to Google, or they'll see on my Twitter, it's race equality and anti-racism in education program. Um, so there's information on the government's website there. It's basically looking at four main themes it's looking at diversity in the workforce, so to how to you know challenge all these barriers we've discussed. It's looking at curriculum reform. So how how are we going to embed and incorporate anti-racism, like I was saying, so that it's not one uh, standalone events, but how do we embed that across all our curricular areas and include those voices that have been drowned out or silenced uh, for so long? How do we include those contributions and successes from different communities? Um, so curriculum reform is looking at that. Um, then we have one that is looking specifically at tackling racism within schools, racist languages, racist incidents, um, and that bullying that can happen in that um, in that regard. There needs to be a recognition that, for example, if um, two children have a squabble and one has has um, made a racial slur or has made fun, for example, of someone because of the way they look. It's not the same as an argument over a football, you know. It, there is a greater and a deeper discussion um, and conversation and lesson that needs to come out of that. So how do we make that happen? Um, also then, one of the biggest ones really that links in with all three is that looking at developing um, better and specific professional leadership and learning courses, um, training that can be rolled out across the whole kind of school community. So I know there's a new uh, building liter racial literacy program, which is being launched in January from Education Scotland. And there are already a number of people signed up to that from all over the country. So to help build that aspect of, obviously I can understand it's quite daunting for a lot of um, our colleagues who do feel, look, I don't have this lived experience. How do I bring about this massive change and make sure I'm doing it properly? You know, I don't want to offend. You know, I don't want to come across as not knowledgeable. So the racial literacy program is going to be really good to help build that knowledge and that kind yeah. of um, process. Um, so that's the kind of four themes that we're looking at at the moment. Um, it started back in February um, and um, it's potentially still going on for another year or so. So we'll see what guidance comes out of that. But again, that is going to be something that is going to be relevant for every school across the country. So it's not going to be something you're going to be able to scroll past. You know, people who are still not maybe engaging are going to have to engage at that point. So um, it's really important that we, you know, share these messages just now. Yep, absolutely, and 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 thank you for for coming on, uh, coming on here today, and and sort of talking that through with us. Um, I dare say, I'll be, this is something we'll come back to in the future. So yeah. maybe I'll have you back um, at, a, at a later date once for once we're into the new year. And I, th I do think it is something that is very important that. As you say, you know, to, to not scroll past, to not just to not just walk past. And I think as well, you know, lots of people will feel that that you were talking about this sense of, you know, worried about wanting to ask or worried about wanting to be in because of that maybe fear about, oh, but you're supposed to already know this stuff or or something like that. Um so I think that that kind of message that that's okay is um yeah. is probably a good thing, a good thing as well, because ultimately anything that's gonna help is to make things better. And as you say, it's not like it's easy, I think, to see this as, and something I've probably been been guilty of myself in the past, to see this as an issue. That the representation in teaching, for example, has been a matter for, you know, what about these young kids who never see themselves in their teachers? 
But equally, as you've said um, tonight, it's also a case for, yeah, but what about these young kids who never see anyone that isn't them and their teachers yes. as well? Yeah. That's equally important if we're talking about the kind of society that we want to build. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, cool. definitely. So thank, thank you very much. thank you very much for uh, for joining us. If you want to um, follow uh, news out on Twitter, it's just at N Uthmani, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah, and you'll Excellent. get all sorts of links from there as well. <laughs> <laughs> so that would be great. Thank you very much um, for joining us today. Brilliant. Thanks a lot. Thanks everyone. Thank you. Cheers. Bye. Are you looking to take your phonics practice forward? Then Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised is the programme for you. Created by two schools with an excellent track record in phonics, Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised will help all children become readers and ensure no child is left behind. The programme offers complete support for your phonics teaching, alongside classroom resources and fully decodable readers from Collins Big Cat. To find out more, follow at Letters Sounds on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram or join a free briefing by visiting littlewondelettersandsounds.org.uk Teachers Talk Radio is delighted to support Winston's Wish, the UK's childhood bereavement charity. Winston's Wish supports children and their families after the death of a parent or sibling. They provide emotional and practical bereavement support. Expert teams also provide online resources, specialist publications and training for professionals. Find out more about Winston's Wish and pledge your support at www.winstonswish.org. Welcome back everybody to the Twilight Show with uh, James McEnany on Teachers Talk Radio where we are talking about the big issues each week that are affecting Scottish education. Um, we've got uh, another what we at, 15 minutes left or so and what we like to do at the end of the, the programme is going to be to have a look at an issue that's not so much a, you know what's been bubbling up this week type of issue, like the kind of things we've talked about already, but more um, look at perhaps a bigger structural, philosophical or ongoing issue which affects Scottish education. Now this week it happens to be a little bit of a hybrid of the two things as will become clear but the issue that I'd like to talk about a little bit tonight uh, towards the end of the show now is the contact time of teachers in Scotland. So um, contact time is the phrase that we use here for the amount of the, the working week, the contracted week that teachers actually spend in front of their classes, as opposed to the time that they spend, you know, doing planning and preparation and, and uh, anything that isn't, you know, the, the, the stuff in front of the wings, basically. Um, now, Scotland, again, as, as I've said, you know, before, Scotland likes to think of itself as this very sort of like progressive and developed and, and forward thinking country. And it has lots and lots and lots of um, very deeply held beliefs with regards to the education system. There are, you know, there's a whole national myth ultimately in Scotland built around the fact that the, 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 the supposed, um, you know, world leading quality of Scottish education at some, you know, never defined point in the past and stuff like that. Um, but the issue is that, and, and even now, you know, for all the talk about, you know, this great past and you've got a government that, you know, went all in on education as our number one priority. This is what we care about. This is what we want to be, we want to be judged on, try to make a whole 
election campaign ultimately um, about education policy years and years out from, from said election. The rhetoric very often in Scotland doesn't match the reality and one of the areas that becomes very, very, very clear is to do with contact time because teachers' contact time is higher in Scotland than it is in almost any other OECD country. So contact time uh, is higher, or OECD affiliates, so contact time is higher in uh, Costa Rica and in Chile. That's kind of about it, actually. Um, Scotland's is higher than the OECD average. It is higher than your, you know, classic, you know, high-performing high countries, maybe take Estonia, for example, or or, uh, or Poland, maybe Japan, but it's also higher than uh, some of the countries that maybe don't come up so, so commonly in those discussions like uh, Germany or Turkey. The other thing in Scotland is that there's no difference uh, in, the, in contact time between primary and secondary, which is a little bit unusual, actually, if you look through other parts of the OECD. Now, the the question on whether or not there should be a disparity between, you know, primary and secondary or people who are and are not teaching, like, exam courses, for example, is, I think, a separate, a separate issue. But the question of overall contact time and the overall balance of a teacher's week is something that really, really, really matters because teachers are being expected to do a hugely complicated job and if we don't give them an appropriate amount of time in order to do the things that aren't the teaching at the class then ultimately what we're doing is we're undermining them as a profession and we're failing to properly support them and you cannot to my mind claim that education is your top priority if it can be demonstrated that you have failed to support the teaching profession and that unfortunately is the case in Scotland. One of the big things that isn't really talked about in terms of, say, Curriculum for Excellence and the various issues that have arisen around Curriculum for Excellence, which are numerous and would run to the length of several shows, so we're not going into them just now, but one of the major contributors is high-class contacting because Curriculum for Excellence is a system that when it was introduced, it was all about you know developing uh, materials that were relevant to individuals schools, even individual classrooms. It was about not having things centrally controlled. It was about freedom for teachers and all these lovely sounding things. Um, but how exactly are you supposed to do any of that, make use of any of that freedom, if you don't have the time to operate as a trusted professional to do your job? to develop that kind of stuff, to work on your curricular offering, to think about the students in your class and how they've engaged with things in the past and how they might engage with things in the future. And all of this stuff takes time. And it shouldn't be a difficult thing for people to understand because, you know, people want their kids to get the best possible teaching in class. They want, that's, what, that's what they want. And that is completely reasonable, right? Parents want their kids to get the best education they can get. And they know that that means, you know, they want the best teacher, the best teaching in front of their kids as much as possible. Completely understandable. But how do you deliver that best teaching if you're not able to plan it? And how do you make sure that the teaching that you are planning is actually what your students need if you're not able to properly review what's come before how exactly 
is any teacher supposed to properly do their job while they're being constantly pressed by a, a level of contact time that simply is not sustainable? And of course, all the, the contact time is then supposed to be protected. But it bleeds away as well. It bleeds away into all sorts of little things here and there, little little, little requests for help, the odd extra please take that you probably shouldn't really do because technically it takes you over, but there's no one else to do it and they don't want to see the kid. You know, the usual things, basically, that just chip away at it. That wee emergency meeting that kind of comes out of nowhere, that thing that came up that took you 25 minutes to deal with, you know, that tech problem that you had to sort out that took up all your prep time one day, you know. Um, all of those problems are, are bigger problems when you have less of that preparation time. And let me tell you a story. Um, I was in talking to it was the BBC. It was after the Scottish government had um, announced that they were going to cut uh, and they were going to uh, scrap the, the SQA, which came about following on from the OECD report. Now, that OECD report actually explicitly identifies Scotland's high contact time as a problem. And for the record, by the way, the OECD has in the past used Scotland as an example of a country with very, very, very high contact time. So to my mind, you know, when the OECD came out with that, that should have been the issue. And I mentioned this last week about the government making sure that the story of the OECD review was what they wanted, something they could control, which was scrapping the SQA. But to my mind, the, the, the contact time thing should have been it. If I'd been the person, you know, if I'd been the editor of the BBC or the Times or the Herald or something, that's what I'd have been focusing on. Not just because, you know, it's something I've been banging on about for ages, but because, you know, a smart editor, it would have opened up a lot of possible stories um, beyond that. And the conversation I had with, it was in, I was in at the BBC and they wanted to just do a little bit on camera and talk about, tell us about the SQA. And I have, you know, people may be aware of being somewhat critical of the SQA in the past. So um asked to go in and do the wee thing on the telly down by the Clyde. And um we did it and it was fine. You know, it's 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 you know 45 seconds or something like that that the the, the that the, the video of me went for. I think it took four takes or something like that um to get it done just to get it right maybe more, you know, people walking by stumbling over a word and things, you know, a seagull, who knows what it was. Um so we finish. And I've been asked about the, the SQA and I've tried my best to make the point of saying, well, yes, you know, but it's not necessarily the big story. And now we're talking afterwards and I'm trying to explain why it's not the big story. And the sort of point that I made is about the contact time. And I'm saying, listen, the OECD are right. This is not my kind of organisation, realistically, a lot of the time. But this stuff is right because all they're doing is saying what we've been saying for years. Contact time is far too high. If you want to improve the quality of teaching that is going on in classrooms, you need teachers to be spending less of their time in them in front of their classes. And people kind of instinctively look, look at you like you're mad because the, the assumption is, well, hold on, if we want better education, people have got used to this kind of way of thinking, which is, you know, cut red tape, spend more time on the jobs. So what they think is actually, we need to cut the amount of time teachers spend doing non-teaching things and increase the time in front of the classroom. But once you explain to them, you know, um, that actually by teaching isn't just the, the delivering stuff to the class, it's all the stuff that comes that comes with it. And this, that was the kind of example I used. And I said to them, like, well, think about it this way. This package is going to go on the telly later on. How, how long is the whole package going to be? We're going to, not just me, the whole bit. Like, oh, you know, a couple of minutes long or something like that. Like, right, okay. So I take it you're going to spend about a minute and a half preparing all this before it goes before it goes on the air. And, you know, cue horrified faces kind of thing, you know, of course not, you know, no, no, it's ages. 
they're going to be working on that that kind of two minute package for you know I mean it could be a few hours working on that get it just right once everything's pulled together we need to go and film people do this do that pull it all together but the only bit that you see takes takes a couple of minutes um and it, it was ridiculous to them because it was ridiculous this idea that you you prep that in less time than it took to actually do it of course you'd spend more time prepping it a lot more time prepping it than you will actually broadcasting it but at that point that's where you point to classrooms because in classrooms we do expect people to create that two minute television package completely created and ready to go and everything sorted out in about you know what 45 seconds to a minute that is that's lit, that is what, what what goes on in there um and it's no wonder then that we have problems it's no wonder that there were these huge ongoing issues with curriculum for excellence it's no wonder that during times of austerity magnifying the problem we have issues around things like literacy and numeracy because there just kind of come a point when you need to ask like if you are going to persistently you know treat a profession this way and treat a, your education system this way um can you really be all that surprised that we end up in this kind of situation? Now, maybe things are going to change. One of the Scottish government's uh, manifesto pledges was, um, I believe, it was in the manifesto, wasn't it? To say that um, they were going to cut uh, contact time. And actually it was, wasn't it? Because at first they said they were going to, uh, the cut was going to be enormous because <laughs> they got the, they got, I can't remember exactly what it was, but they got the phrasing badly, badly wrong. Um, it, realistically, what the government are looking to do um, now, they say, is they're going to deliver on uh, their promise of reducing contact time a bit. I think they're talking about 90 minutes, you know, um, by next year. They're saying August 2022. Now, this is the same party that said that we were going to have free school meals for all kids, um, and that's now going to take longer. And this is the same party that very, very famously, I mean, you know, a long time ago, promised, absolutely promised that it would there be an investment in Scotland's young people by reducing the number, uh, class sizes in lower primary to 18 or less. And I uh, don't know about the rest of you, but I'm still waiting. So there is an element here of, we'll believe it when we see it. The SNP government is long, long, long past the point of getting the benefit of the doubt on this. So we'll wait and see. But if, even if it does happen, the fear is that the SNP sees what is a relatively minor cut as the end of the process. They see that as we've done it, we've cut it, and technically they'll be able to turn around and say the OECD said cut contact time, we have cut contact time. You know, but a five minute cut would have done that. I mean, they wouldn't have stopped them using it in a press release. But um, we need to be more ambitious than just this little tiny cut just to make to see where we are just now. It will take a long time. It, it's something that is going to have to happen over one maybe two parliaments but ultimately uh my view on this hasn't really shifted um and in fact probably just got more entrenched as i was sort of doing the research for it all um my view is that 50 50 is a fairer reflection of what teaching involves for every hour that you teach there should be an hour or at least of um mixture of review and preparation for every hour you teach, you've had half an hour to review the last one and then half an hour to plan that hour. I think, thinking about it as an educator, I think that's what I would love to be able to prepare really brilliant experiences for my students. As a parent, it's what I would really dearly love to be available to my son's teacher. So this may well be the start of the process. 
the important thing for us, I think, should be that we ensure that it is just the start, absolutely not the end, and it becomes part of the broader reform of Scottish education that I think we all know that we want to see. Um, it turns out we have time for one last little thing just to drop in here. Now, this was, this came up on Twitter, right? Um, and I managed to miss it. I was dead pleased. I saw a tweet about it later on and thought, oh, thank God you missed that, right? However, I saw a thing about it again. I've got to spare a couple of minutes here, so, you know, why not? I missed out on another big, you know, Twitter rammy about the issue, about, and people who are not teachers will be listening to this, right? You're going to be thinking, what's wrong with you people? Um, a big rammy about punishing kids for no having pains right kid comes in without a pain or a pencil and they get a punishment exercise or in some case they get and i know it's i mean i'm laughing i'm making fun of it right because it is ridiculous or they're getting detention you know for not having it not having a pain in class you know and this is one of these things where it isn't a big or serious issue and it's made a bigger serious issue to be completely frank right by adults behaving poorly and turning things into a stupid pointless fight and a stupid pointless fight that you would never ever have with adults because you would never treat adults that way um we've all look you know we've all got issues that we need to work on everybody personally has got their flaws right but we shouldn't be taking them out on our students so this one is actually it was fine to drop it in the end because it's actually very 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 simple if you're punishing kids for something like not having a pen or a pencil in class, if that's really getting you wound up and you're sending kids off to detentions and things, could I maybe just suggest, just as we finish off here, that maybe you want to maybe get a bit of a grip or maybe even just decide to go and live your best life and go and work in a prison instead. So thank you very much, everybody. That's been The Twilight Show with James McEnany on Teacher Talk Radio. There's a bit of a gap now because we've got the holidays coming up. Um, hopefully after the holidays, the entire country isn't in another, you know, three month lockdown or something like that. Uh, but even if it is, I'll still be in my house at my little desk here with my computer and my microphone. So I'll be back after the holidays for more of the Twilight Show. We'll do more um, interrogation of the big issues facing Scottish education and talking to more people from all different parts of the system. So thank you very, very, very much for joining me. Have a lovely Christmas. Have a very nice new year. Do the best with it you can, I suppose, under the circumstances. And um, we'll all be, we'll see how it goes once we all go again in January. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.